will do a very short recap today because I want to get into this thing really quick. But like I said, we're going to talk about marriage. I don't really think in the church setting, in the contemporary church setting, you cannot talk about marriage enough. Everybody in this room knows somebody that's been divorced, that that marriage could have been saved if somebody had just stepped in and said, hey, there's a better way. Everybody in this room knows somebody right now that is having a problem in their marriage that you might not know about and could be pouring into them just by sharing Christ with them. Everybody in this room already knows somebody that's on the opposite side of a marriage that could have been saved had they known Christ. Everybody does. It's, it's a simple fact. Satan loves to break up marriages. Why? Because a marriage is the representation of Christ redeeming his church to himself. It is the picture of Christ coming back to take us home. And Satan loves to dig in and wreck that through numerous means. More than anything else, it is messed up. When you look at everything that's going on in America today, the feminist movement and women's liberation and the LGBTQAI plus movement and all these kind of things, what do they target? Two things, men being leaders in the home and marriage. Simple. That's what he is targeting. He's breaking apart the things that God set up. What is that old saying is like, um, God creates, Satan counterfeits. And so that's what he does. He counterfeits things and he makes them look better for you. And they're not better for you. They're, they're, they're worse. They are satanic. So our recap is last week we discussed attributes that we put on as believers. And as you're going to see this tie in, this is really important. Attributes we put on as believers. Call, Paul calls, calls us chosen and holy and beloved. These attributes include these things that we talked about. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all, love. Right? And we really dug in on how we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and how we let the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. How do we do that? We dig into the word of God. You can't let it pour over you. You can't let it fill you up if you're not reading it. I don't mean Sunday. I mean on your own. If you're not at home reading out of the word of God, it is not filling you up, period. It's so important to dig into the word of God. So does not, not only does digging into the word of God help you develop an intimate relationship with your creator, with God, it writes his word on your heart, right? We are commanded to write his word on our heart and allow him to dwell in you richly, as Paul tells us, right? Then these responsibilities that Paul gives us about teaching, right? He tells us we need to teach and admonish one another. So we are called to correct one another, guide one another, and teach one another what the word of God is. And we talked about that in the role of the mother and the father as well. Very important. So furthermore, we're called to be thankful in everything and do all things in the name of our Lord, right? So you're going to see that developing these attributes in your Christian walk and digging into the word of God are not just essential for your own walk, not just essential for the things that you do. They're essential for families. You need these attributes in order for your family to work right. So we went over those. Kindness, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and above all love all sound like things that are pretty good in a marriage, right? So not just good for the Christian, not just good for the church, fabulous for a good marriage to be compassionate, to be loving, to be kind, to be meek, to love your spouse, all of those things, right? Part of a healthy Christian home. So let's go in real quick. Colossians 3, let's start in verse 18. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 18. 
And we're actually going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. This is one of those spots, there's just a couple of these in the Bible, but why Colossians 4 starts in that verse doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It, there's one verse that should actually be kind of at the end of chapter 3, but it's okay. Because we're not restricted by the letters and numbers, they're just addresses. But let's start Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. says this, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing you also have a master in heaven. <clears throat> All right, let's back up. We have studied Ephesians 5, verse 22 to 33, months ago. What is that all about? Anybody remember? Remember what Paul talks about in there? Anybody, Ephesians 5? It's about marriage, right? It's like the most referenced part of the Bible when we talk about marriage. It's the one that they attack Christians on regularly because they're like, it says that women need to obey men. Not true. This is about a marriage relationship. But it it's really focuses on men because after he tells women, it goes into this whole thing about how men should be in their marriage and the responsibility there is, okay? But we, you learn a lot about the relationship between a wife and a husband, what it looks like from a biblical perspective from those verses. Wives submitting, husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church giving his life up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, right? Our service and love as husbands is done in order to what? To present our wives as holy and without blemish to God, the Father. That's your job as a husband. If what you are doing in your marriage is not lifting your wife up to the Lord, it's not what God has called for you to do. That's your whole, whatever you do, Raising your children, loving your wife, serving your wife, providing for your wife, teaching your wife, studying with your wife, it needs to be to lift her up to God. And we love them more than we love our own bodies. This is all Ephesians 5, right? This picture of marriage is a picture of Christ, as I said, redeeming the church, redeeming the church to itself, holy and spotless. Listen to this. In, in Revelation, John wrote this, let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is a picture of Jesus coming back. The marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, the, that's the church, that's us, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the picture of that marriage. The husbands have prepared their wives, sanctified her, and prepares for the Lord to come back. It's an amazing call on the husband to love his wife, to sanctify her, to put everything before his wife, to teach and admonish her, and to prepare her for heaven. That's what we're called to do, right? 
So again, Paul tells here in Colossians, tells wives to submit to their husbands. And if you remember back to that study, we talked about that word submit. So this isn't a submit like a slavery submit. The word actually comes from a word that's used in Greek language, mostly when you're talking about the military. And it's about order. It's like willingly putting yourself in order. It's not about submission like people who attack the word would say. There's not a good translation into English other than the word submit. But it really means to like fall in line with your husband and let him lead you willingly, right? Um, but it, it's very clear in here that it says when you do it, do it as is fitting to the Lord. So this is the catch, right? A wife is never called to do sinful acts, words, or thoughts. A wife is never called to do things that are outside of her Christian walk. This is about order, in, in, but not submission that's harmful or painful, right? And I like this picture. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this picture before. There's this um, three umbrellas where the large umbrella is God. Has anybody ever seen this? And then under that umbrella is the wife. She's a smaller umbrella. And so the woman is in submission to God, the father, right? He provides for her. He protects her. He sanctifies her. He purifies her. Everything she does is under God. When the husband comes in, he comes in with a little bit larger umbrella and comes in over her. I can't use all my hands here. So he comes in over her. So when he comes in, she submits to him, but she is still under God. If the husband slides out of the way, guess where the wife doesn't go? She doesn't follow the husband into sinfulness. She stays under God, right? So there's no call for her to make her way into sinfulness or to follow the husband if he's leading her elsewhere or if he's abusive, whether that be physically abusive, sexually abusive, uh, psychologically abusive. There's no case for her to go. So it's very clear here that she, is, she does it as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands are called to love their wives. <clears throat> We've talked about that Greek word love a lot and how they mean different things. Some is brotherly love, some is friendly love, some is intimate love, some is a, a very intimate love. And then there's that one that is that godly love. What is that one? Agape love. So this word is the agapeo love, right? So he's called to love their wife. And again, it's sacrificial. There's no expectation of reciprocation and there's no preconditions. When you love your wife, She's not loving me back, so I'm going to get bitter. No, 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 no. You are called to love your wife no matter what. But she's not being obedient. Ah, no, 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 no. You are called to love your wife no matter what. Remember this, Christian, that relationship that you have with God, he is still being faithful to you when you are not faithful to him. As you are faithful to your wife when she is not faithful to you. Right? Think of those umbrellas. He tells husbands not to be harsh with their brides. And we're going to touch on that in a minute. So I'm going to skip over it. He talks about children. So if there are children in the room, you need to listen. Listen closely. If you're a child in the room, listen closely. You ready? You need to be what? Obedient to your parents. What does that mean to be obedient? It means to be obedient. It means you do what you're told. How many times out of 10 are you supposed to do what you're told? 11. So you always do what you're told and then you do what's expected of you. 
without being told. So very important, right? The same root word that is used for women to be obedient um, is used for this word, but it's a little bit different nuanced word. And in this case, the word is translated to ensure, this is what it really translates to, that you listen and you hearken to the words and teaching and examples of your parents. It's godly to follow your parents. That's what it is. So this is hard for kids as they learn and you are molding them and shaping them because what do they want to do? They want to test those boundaries really bad. And what Paul is saying is, hey, stop testing those boundaries. Your parents are doing their best to bring you up right. Stop testing those boundaries. We all know they're going to do it anyway, which is why we teach them, which is why we teach them, right? So back to not being harsh to your wife. And then not provoking your kids. We'll talk about this. We don't want to provoke our kids so they don't become discouraged. What's most likely being dressed here was a common practice in Greco-Roman culture. I'm going to talk about just for a second. So why say not to be harsh to your wife? Why say not to exacerbate your kids? It seems just kind of weird. Like if you tell me to love my wife, I would think not being harsh to her is kind of part of the package. If you tell kids to obey you and you're being faithful to them it seems weird to tell you don't exactly well why would i exacerbate them that is maybe i love them but there was this thing in greco-roman culture called paterfamilias anybody ever heard this word before if you ever watch oh brother how art thou he refers to himself as i am the paterfamilias of this family and i actually jokingly like to say that i am the paterfamilias of my family when they are being disobedient to me but i say it in a joking way and they'd never laugh at my jokes so it is what it is. But actually, the, the Greco-Roman culture, paterfamilias, was not a good thing at all. I want you to listen to this quote. Uh, this quote is from a, a theologian named Gottfried Scheiman. <clears throat> and it describes what paterfamilias was to the Romans. Listen to this. From a legal perspective, the head of the, Rome, of the family in Rome was the most important person in the family. Okay? So first of all, dad is most important. If you lay down your life for your wife, you can't be the most important person. Get it? So the paterfamilias is the most important person. Here's the word he used. It's king, as it were. As holder of patria potestas, or the power in the family, and manus, which translates as hand, but means power over your wife. You have the manus over your wife. Complete power. He held power at any rate over the wife and children, even when they were adults, grandchildren and slaves. So complete power over everybody. As the autocrat of the family, he was the only member of the family to hold rights and privileges. So you own the land, you own the business, you own your wife, you own your kids, you own your grandkids, you own the slaves. You make all the legal decisions, you make all the family decisions, you make the decision on what's gonna be warmed up in the microwave for dinner, you get to control all the beatings, you can disown people, you can sell people, and nobody else can say anything about it. The wife, the kids, whoever lives in your house, you're the pattern familias. Listen to this, apart from having sole legal capacity and respect to the entire family in private legal terms, the pattern familias also had a private right to punish his dependents, especially his sons, daughters, and slaves. So complete punishment. Where the wife was subjected to the manus, the hand, 
of the husband, he also had this right over her. So she has no rights. This capacity to exercise control extended to the right of life or death. So this is, remember, we are here in Colossae. This is what Paul is contending. This was a clear and present reality for him. When he's telling the family to be orderly in a certain way and he tells husbands to love their wives, this is what he's contending with. It's not surprising Paul's stirring up enemies in the Roman Empire. Everything that he is teaching is counter to the culture. The culture says, I am the paterfamilias, I rule the home. And Paul is like, stop it. Your job is to serve them. You are not in charge. God is in charge. Your job is to serve your family well. These Roman guys don't like that. The idea of a husband sacrificially loving his wife, his children, his servants is a real power struggle for the Romans. They don't know how to respond to this. Right? Any of our contemporary protests against the patriarchy, you've heard this word late, lately used, we're like, we're fighting the patriarchy. First of all, you know zero about world history because you're not fighting the patriarchy, right? And it's based on ignorance of Jesus because Jesus' patriarchal society was a man who served his, and led his family well. That, that's it. It's not about the man having the man over his family. You know, Jesus, Paul, and the entirety of the biblical text calls for men to serve their families. We are a patriarchy in the sense that the man is called to be like Christ, the head of the family, firmly rooted in truth, led by a loving heart of service and sacrifice. That's how, that's how we're a patriarchy. And we've discussed bond servants before as this, this verse, this passage actually talks about bond servants or the word slaves. We've talked about it before in the past. The Bible tells us from the perspective of the nation of Israel, we went back to Exodus and looked at that example. Um, the rules that God made for Israel, we've talked about slavery from a Christian perspective. Paul's message here is consistent with all of that. Servants should be obedient and they should work hard. And they work hard to please God, not their earthly masters. You please God because you work hard and you do well and your earthly masters will be happy. Um, this message can easily be applied to any one of us that holds a job because really that is what we do. As a bond servant, you go to somebody and take a job from them and you serve well. As employees, we're called to, called to be sincere and do things that are right in the eyes of God, not just your boss, right? And we know that the real inheritance, as Paul gets into here, is not from this earth, that just because you do well and they pay you or you do well and they give you a bonus or they do well and they give you time off, that's not your inheritance. You do well and God gives you an inheritance as well. So that's the inheritance that we get. In heaven, we store up our treasure, we were told, right? So we serve God and don't worry about gaining earthly treasure. We serve God and know that we're gonna earn treasure in heaven, right? But this was obviously an issue that needed to be addressed. Why? Why is Paul telling servants to work hard? Because there were obviously some Bad servants, people that were taking advantage of the system, right? Paul told them not to do wrong and that they will be paid back by God. Servants, they would steal from their masters, right? They would take more than there, were, there was offered. But this practice is still alive today. So all this stuff in the Bible is applicable today. Think about this. Think about how the world works right now. Do we not live in a culture that is decided that it does not need to work for the benefits that it receives? Oh man, look at it. Look at the social programs that we have where people will 
absolutely take advantage of their, we'll do, uh, you know, finger quotes, their masters, right? All of the disability programs, and I'm not saying they're all bad. We, we should be supporting our neighbors. We can have that political debate elsewhere. But the reality is there are things in place to help people and help people stand back up on their feet that people take advantage of all the time. People do it where you work. You know this. Especially if you're in a supervisory role, you know that there's at least one person who takes advantage of the system for their own gain because they are one of a number of things, lazy, etc. right? So this is not unapplicable today. So there's this really odd break here. We're going to jump into the end of this. Really odd break. So if you turn over to Colossians 4.1, you see the entirety of this passage almost sums up everything before it. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven, right? So he addresses the paterfamilias here in a relationship at the lowest member of the household, the servant, the slave, and tells them to treat them justly and fair. So you look at the father who's got the manus over the family, who's in charge, who's the king, who's in charge legally, who's got control over everybody, can beat everybody, let everybody live or die. And he takes the lowest person on the totem pole, which is the slave. And he goes, hey, you, master, see that guy slave down there? Treat them just and treat them fairly. He skip jumps everybody in the middle and goes, you be good to them. You be good to them. They're the lowest of the low, but you're going to be good to them. That's what God does. Remember, we talked about the kenosis. He empties himself and he comes down here. He serves the lowest of the low. He becomes below. He goes down. So it flips all of this on its head. So let's look at these values then. Let's look at these family values. And I told you at the beginning, these family values were going to apply to all this. As we've summed up what it looks like to be a wife who serves, a wife who obeys, a husband who serves his wife, children who obey their parents, Bond servants who obey, and then back up to the top, masters who take good care of their servants because our master, the man's master, the head of the household's master is God, the master in heaven. So sum it all up. How do we get good order in our family? How do we lead our families in a way that honors the Lord? <clears throat> well, it starts back at the beginning of chapter two. Excuse me, chapter three. We're in chapter three. Well, all the way back to the beginning of chapter three. When we are saved, when we are in Jesus Christ, what do we do? We set things aside from the world. Paul told us right from the get-go, these things are dead to you. Put them aside, right? All the evil in the world, everything that exists in the world that's not consistent with Christ, we set it aside, we kill it, we put it to death. We are dead to the world and all of its strife. We focus where? Heaven, where Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. We put on godly attributes and love each other in a way that binds us together as a church, as believers, as husband and wife, as parents and children, bonds us together in what Paul calls here perfect harmony. And then we live thankful lives and we do everything for the Lord. That is the recipe. That is the recipe. We set aside our past life. We put it behind us because we're saved. We embrace our new life in Jesus Christ, and it's the foundation of a healthy family. Set aside the old stuff. Embrace the new stuff. So I contend with this. If your family is out of order, if there's something that's going on in your family and it's breaking, what have you not set aside? 
Read the list. Go back to chapter three and look at the list. Is there something in there that you have just not put to death? I would contend there probably is. If there's a problem in your marriage, something still exists that's festering, that needs to be cut out, set out, put to death. So look there. If your family is out of order, what attributes of Christ are you not exhibiting in your walk? So then move away from the bad stuff and look at the good stuff. Look at those good attributes. Which one of those are you not putting on? Are you not kind to your family? Are you, know, are you not long-suffering to? What is the thing that you need to work on so that your family sees Christ in you? What attributes of Christ are you not exhibiting in your walk for your family also to emulate? Because what do our kids do? They're little imitators. They're going to do what you do. Everybody knows kids say what you say. We've all had that problem before, right? <laughs> Especially when they're really little. Yeah, it happens, right? Think of it this way. For a wife to truly submit to her husband, she has to put those things to death and start putting on those godly attributes. To be a wife. And to be a mother, she needs to set aside the things of the world and embrace the things of Christ. Keep her eyes on heaven. For a husband to truly love his wife, the previous must be clung to as the truth and practice daily, setting aside those things that are of the world and embracing those attributes of Christ and focusing on heaven. For children to be obedient, they must live in a home where parents have put to death their past and who passionately embrace Christ, living godly lives that are examples of holy living, which is what Paul calls it, the hagios, live a holy life. That's what he calls us to do. Embrace those attributes of Christ, keep your eyes on him. Last week, we focused on letting the word of God dwell richly in you, right? And we were reminded that this starts with a regular, consistent, healthy study of the word of God. I can't say it enough. It, it, it starts, it all starts with a regular, consistent, healthy study of the word of God. And families are falling apart around us everywhere as we talked about before we started the study. And I told you I had discussions this this past week and I'm telling you, it saddens me to hear the pain and strife that are involved in these families because none of it's happy. You guys know this, none of it's happy. You don't talk to that guy or that gal at work and they're like, I'm getting divorced. Everything's going great. Best thing of my life. I've never had more money in the bank. My car's running good. The kids are happy. Everything is never, never. It's always like she's crazy. His crazy kids are out of control. Nobody knows where to pick them up from school. She's got custody, but she called me cause I got to go get, I got custody, but she, and it's like this, I'm out of money. I can't sell that. I mean, you know, the hundred things that come with these broken marriages, it's just never good. It's always Strife, they're falling apart. It breaks my heart. But for me, for me, for Jeff, I recognize that my family is strong because we have focused on Christ for our strength, period. Carol will tell you, like, there's nothing that we have done because we have done it all wrong. There's nothing we've done. We focused on Christ for our strength over the years. But it doesn't mean we haven't dealt with trouble. I mean, we have dealt with Tons of stuff. Our marriage has been a mess at some points to the point where you think it's going to go. We talked about divorce many years ago. You know, we've dealt with the death of a child. We have dealt with loss in the family. We've dealt with, I mean, like you guys, multiple deployments, just the stress of 
As you guys know, reintegration is way harder than, I mean, leaving's the easy part. It's like coming home is usually messy. It's like a day or two of amazing. And then it's like, oh, man, it was a lot easier when I was gone. There's no like laundry laying everywhere and girl's hair in the shower drain and all that stuff, right? It was like, it was easy, right? It is hard. So how do we do it? How did we do it? You know, we built our love and our faithfulness on the Lord. That's what we have done. And it's what we continue to do. And as we get older, it's like, we're going to keep pouring into God because now it helps us pour into others, right? God wants you to have an orderly and loving home, one that honors him. And as he guides us through scripture, listen to this, he guides us through scripture. He teaches us about the family all the time. Like it's never not a part of the teaching. You talk about anything in the Bible and the family is a part of it. And let me give you some <coughs> examples. Genesis 2 shows us the first marriage. A man and a woman hold fast to one another. And what are they made to do with one another? Procreate, have kids, make a family and love them. Exodus 20 tells us to honor our mothers and fathers. Psalm 127 says that our children are a heritage of the Lord. Psalm 128 shows us the blessing of a wife that we have as men, the blessing of a wife and the children that she will bear for us. Proverbs 12 tells us a good wife is a crown of her husband. Proverbs 22 instructs us to train up our children in the way they should go. 1 Timothy 3 calls elders to manage their household well. 1 Timothy 5 tells us to provide for our families. All of these verses, all of these, I mean, just the fact that God refers to himself as our father insinuates that he understands what the family looks like, that he, God holds this concept of family in high regard. The first time we see God as a father is Exodus 4. He reveals himself to Israel. He refers to Israel as his son. That's what he does. He refers to Israel as a son. His chosen people are his family. He loves them. He provides for them. He cares for them. He lays himself down for them. He has a plan for them and he forgives them just like a father should. <clears throat> Listen to this. There are 584 references to fathers in the Bible. There are 414 references to wives in the Bible. Remember I told you in Genesis 2, when he, the man and the woman come together, when they leave their parents, they become a family. I mean, they do what Adam and Eve were called to do, which is procreate, which is make children and love them as a family. There are 1,727 references to children in the Bible. What we do, we create families. God cares about families. It's a priority to him and it needs to be a priority to us. It needs to be a priority to us for our family. It needs to be a priority that we pour into other people's families so that their families can get better. So this is my encouragement for this week. Encouragement for this week is reread through Colossians 3. Start at Colossians 3 verse 1 and read through Colossians 4 verse 1. Our families will best honor and glorify God when we intentionally establish them built on the principles that are in the third chapter of Colossians, setting aside the things of the world, focusing on God. So for me this week, it's my prayer that your marriages will grow deep in Jesus Christ. That is my prayer for you. 
My intentional prayer for you is that your marriages will all grow deep in Christ Jesus and that your children will see that love you have for them and the love that you have for him, right? Because that is the one they're going to emulate when they see you pray, when they see you kiss your wife, when they see you hold your bride close, when they see you be gentle with her and love her, when as a wife they see your response to your husband, allowing him to lead in Christ. This is what they will emulate. Your daughters will look for men like their husbands and your boys will look for wives that are like their mom. My prayer for you is that you will grow deep in Christ Jesus and your children will see that love they have for each other and then imitate it in their own lives. That is my prayer for you. Father God, we are thankful for who you are. We are thankful for our families here and ask that you continue to richly, richly bless them, that you would help us to understand how important it is to write your name on our heart, to write your word into our lives daily by digging into the word of God. We'll have an answer for the hope that is in our lives. We'll have an answer to our friends who are going through marital strife. We'll have an answer to the world when they question the family. We will be prepared because your word will be written into us so well. I'm thankful for all of these lovely families around us who bring their children weekly and gather and break bread and pray to you and serve you and serve each other and lift up your holy name. And we just pray that it would be sweet incense to you, Lord, that you look at our families and you are happy with us. You are glorified by us, <coughs> that you are pleased by us, Lord. And we pray that because of the way that our families are built, that the people in our communities, that our neighbors would look to us and say, that's what I want. A healthy and strong and loving family that is godly, that serves you well. With wives who submit to their husbands, husbands who serve their wives well, laying themselves down for her. Children who are obedient and love their parents. And we ask for all these things in the name of our blessed and holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.